0: This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety 2024. Registration is now open for Safety 2024 in Denver. Join us Wednesday, August 7th through Friday, August 9th to connect with your safety community and get up to speed on the latest knowledge and innovations in the field. Learn more and register at safety.assp.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Very excited for today's show, where we're going to be talking about communication structures. These, of course, play a critical role in the infrastructure of communities across the country and around the world. But in order to fulfill that role, the construction, modification, maintenance, and demolition of those structures has to be done safely. The recently updated ANSI ASSP A1048 standard offers guidance on how to do just that. And I'm very happy to welcome the two gentlemen who oversee that standard as the chair and vice chair of the A1048 subcommittee, Gordon Lyman and Don Doty. Gordon, Don, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you, Scott. We appreciate the opportunity. Excited for the conversation. Now, before we get into uh, the details of the standard itself, I want to talk a little bit about the history. So, Don, I thought maybe you could uh, start us off and kind of
1: give us the origins of A1048. I'd be glad to, Scott. The outline for A10.48 was started many years ago at the ACOSH, which is the Advisory Committee on Construction Safety and Health. Chairman Kevin Beauregard, then the Area Director for North Carolina OSHA, asked Nate to bring back to ACOSH the industry best practices. Well, Nate's OSHA Relations Committee gathered all the available best practices, and those 15 chapters became the foundation for several source documents. First was the OSHA Strategic Partnership, a checklist for Nate members, and the foundation for the first ANSI ASSE time, A10.48. An agreement between Nate and OSHA, and OSHA created regulations for riding the line, and Nate to write standards for the design of base mounted hoists and gin poles. Then the A10.48 and TIA 322 standards evolved into these two standards. It was, however, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, David Michaels, in 2009 who told Nate to develop industry standards for OSHA wood. The threat of a proposed rulemaking about the top industry set the wheels in motion. Gordon reached out to a member of the A10 committee and asked if the dormant A10.48 could be used. The committee was formed, and five years later, ANSI-ASSE, now known as ASSP, was published in 2016. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for that that background. Now, Gordon, I know, as with any
0: standards, you know, things evolve as, you know, time goes on and things change in the industry, things like that. So, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how A1048 has evolved to the point where it is today.
2: Absolutely. We had the... Uh... Jim Pole standard, we had the base-mounted-hoist standard, and as Don mentioned, as the committee was put together and we started reviewing the OSHA regulations and other industry standards, we saw that and understood that there really wasn't any existing regulations and standards that covered the telecom industry. So from that, we used the two standards, the Jim Pole standard and the base-mounted-hoist standard kind of as the base for the new standard. And when we wrote the first standard, it was a design and use standard. It was a combined standard. And as we went through that, we soon understood through trial and error, you could say that that didn't work very well. So we split the design part of the standard and the use standard. And the design part became TIA 322, and the use standard was a now, both of these standards currently refer back to the TIA 22 standard, which is the design standard for towers.
0: Okay, now, uh, kind of getting into the details of, of the standard itself, I know one of the big components is pre job planning and job hazard analysis. So, Donna, where do you kind of walk us through what goes into that pre job planning and that job hazard analysis?
1: Well, there, it's been said that pre job planning is, is the essential part of the project that doing the work in the field is actually just carrying it out. But that's like Dwight D. Eisenhower used to say that planning was essential, but plans were useless. In other words, we had to adapt. And the the crews always give us feedback, and they're the ones that are on the front line, not, not the people that are in the office writing the documents. But, you know, there's a difference between analysis and assessment, and I don't know that I've always used the two words properly. When we look at Merriam-Webster, to analyze something is to separate a whole into its components, which allows a person to break something complex down into simpler and more basic elements. On the other hand, an assessment is defined as the act of making a judgment about something. To assess something, you're estimating the value or character of the object. And I think that's an important distinction that we worked on. The one that just went into effect in 2024 was to make sure that the hazard analysis is done and not just an assessment. The pre-job planning and the JJ before work starts, that has to be conducted in the field. And new to this one, we went from rigging plans, which is what has been preached for the last six years. And now that's being changed to construction plans. And that's gonna be something that specifying what's going on on the project. The class of the lift that's being completed, the qualifications of the individuals that are involved, competent person, qualified person, qualified engineer, qualified climbers, if applicable. There's a general list of items in those sections, and that guides users on what should be included in a construction plan. I'm curious, I know uh, we'll we'll get
0: into some of the more specific ones, but thinking about a job hazard analysis, what are some of the more common hazards with these types of structures that safety professionals should be aware of as
1: they're doing this pre-job planning and the job hazard analysis? Well, there's many elements, of course. As you can imagine, climbing, getting off the ground, in other words, once you're six feet off the ground, you have to be using continuous fall protection, and that includes how you climb the ladder. In other words, we always use three points of contact two hands and one foot, or two feet and one hand. That's the act of climbing. And to maintain continuous fall protection, you either have to double hook with the back lanyards, or you've got to use a, a, a tower mounted safety system of some sort. And uh, like a ladder safety cable on a tower is an appurtenance until you start using it, and then it's part of the PPE. So it changes its nature when you go to use it. Power lines on a tower site, if you're having to rig the tower or you're having to bring uh, hoist equipment on the tower. Water on the site. Raptors that are building nests on some of these towers. So it can be any number of things. Uh, weather, it can be cold or it can be extremely hot or high winds or storms. So JHAs are very important in that they cover each company has their own kind of specialized paperwork that they use that the crew needs to document at the beginning of the job and sometimes daily.
0: Right, because yeah, the conditions are changing on a daily basis, so you you definitely want to stay on top of that. Now, Don, you touched on the the fall protection there, but Gordon, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about the fall protection aspect of this kind of work. As Don noted, you know you have a lot of people working at height and everything that goes along with that, so. When we're thinking about fall protection related to communication structures, you know, what does A1048 have to say about that? And what should safety professionals remember?
2: Scott, first of all, I'd like to go back to Dawn's topic. In the standard, there there is an extensive list of things that are a guide that people can use that should be in a construction plan, a job hazard analysis, whatever it may be, very extensive list in there. So in, in regards to fall protection, our goal on this particular topic was not to duplicate existing standards. The ANSI Z three fifty nine and the A ten thirty two standard dedicate themselves to fault protection, and so there's no there was no need to duplicate those standards. So what we did is we picked out items that were specific to the telecom structures, and so in this standard there's only a, a few items. And the specific line for site working training is a little different than the A-1032 and Z-359 in that if you have a two-person crew, shall have a minimum of one competent climber rescuer and one authorized climber rescuer. And a crew of three or more workers shall have a minimum of two competent climbers and rescuers. So those are the only details. Uh, if you're following this standard, you really need to be familiar with the ANSI-359 standard also.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I encourage folks to take a look at that for fall protection information you might be looking for. Gordon, you mentioned, you know, the the climbing and Don, you touched on this earlier. I mean, the, a lot of climbing involved with working on these kind of structures and, you know, the access that's necessary to do those type of tasks. So I'm, uh, I wonder if we shift to that and talking about, you know, the climbing facilities and the, the structure access and, you know, what, what goes on
1: with that aspect of working with these structures. I touched on it earlier, Uh, a fixed safety climb is considered an appurtenance under TIA-222 until a climber uses it, and then it becomes PPE, or personal protective equipment. And it's the climber's responsibility to properly use it, to use it for ascension and, and descending, and then you have to transition off of it if you need to work on the tower someplace other than right in front of the ladder, which most people, most climbers know, you don't work off the ladder very often work on the tower, so you have to listen. And how you do all of that becomes it. it's company, it's a requirement that OSHA has and that companies specify the process of the procedure that an individual employee may use to access the particular type of tower that they're working on. And each tower is unique. There are certain elements of it that are common, if it's a self-supporting tower, a monopole, or a guide tower, but how you work on that particular tower is something that the crew has to determine. And it's usually the company that decides what equipment they're going to use. And then they adapt that based on site specific conditions. Staying on that topic
0: with these kind of structures, you know, you're lifting both personnel and materials to do this work to complete these tasks. So Gordon, I'm curious, talk us through that process of, you know, safely getting, you know, both personnel and materials to to where they need to be throughout this process.
2: Well, going back to the original standards or the base of the foundations was uh, base-mounted hoists and gym poles that we wrote in an agreement with OSHA. And the base-mounted hoist is a design and use standard. And the gym pole uh, is also a design and use standard. But the uh, gym poles is covered, the design of gym poles is covered in TIA 322. That's why it's important that the A1048 and the 322 standard run in parallel because one is design and the other one is use and the criteria there is a different criteria for base mounted hoist design than for lifting materials so in the standard there is a very detailed section on how you design a hoist what it needs to do what the operator has to be trained to do and the same for gin poles so And this is all part of the pre-lift plan. I want to clarify that lifting employees on is very specific to this standard. It's not for any other standard. And that's important that everybody understands that.
0: Definitely. And and along with that, another section of the standard deals with the structural loading conditions uh, along those same lines and making sure you're not overloading the structure. Very important in construction work, obviously. So, Don, I want to talk about that a little bit, and you know how that ties in with reconstruction planning, so you make sure that you're not overloading the structure
1: as as the work is being done. That's a great question, Scott. A documented rigging plan is part of the construction plan, and it outlines the parameters of the equipment being used and the load forces that will be placed on the structure. Uh, that's important because small loads are, can have less effect on the tower but larger loads can impact the structure itself. And that's where i have to have when you get get into the three different classes that are part of the standard. There's class two, three, and four. And once you get to class four, you're raising 2,000 pounds. And those are significant forces that have to be evaluated under the structure. The requirements for structural modifications and member removal are also part of the structural loading considerations. In other words, you can't take an in-service member out of a tower to replace it with a larger one without having a temporary frame, or instructions from a structural engineer about the proper procedure so that you don't put the the structure in jeopardy. There's many ways that that we've, over the years, that we've seen uh, accidents happen where people didn't take into consideration the existing forces on the structure. So this standard, again, reinforces those requirements to work with a structural engineer and develop a documented rigging plan as part of the overall construction plan on the project. You, you touched on class four there. I wonder
0: if we could talk about, you know, uh, that that class two and three also just, you know, to kind of give folks a better idea of of each class so you know what you're dealing with and the
1: considerations that go along with that. Class one and two are now combined. and It's just called a class two and where the industry's having significant problems are with the type of equipment being installed and the type of uh, equipment being used to install flat equipment. Synthetic rope is great for installation on light installations, but even that can become seriously compromised when raising something that weighs 400 to 50 pounds. The steel can cut synthetic, and if it's left overnight it can compromise the integrity of the synthetic rope that's being used and that's where we're seeing a lot of accidents so their limits have been placed on both of those classifications and the weight as it goes up there's more involved it requires more people to be involved in to look at it so you don't have to have one person that's responsible so it's we think we've got it all that we can do to provide guidance on what's the best way to approach the rigging on that communication tower. So we don't continue to have those property damages that, we're, that we've been seeing for the last few years. Something you touched on there that,
0: you know, the, all the different individuals involved on these work sites. And Gordon, I'm curious, when it comes to training... You have your employers, your riggers. There's so many different people involved in this process. I wonder if you can kind of talk a little bit about the responsibilities of each of those individuals and the training involved with each of those groups to ensure that everybody knows how to do their job safely.
2: Yeah, training can be a very extensive topic. I mean, there are so many different categories or topics that are involved in telecommunications work. So as a result, this revision, we kind of changed our outlook a little bit on training and that the employer is responsible for setting up a training program. And the reason we put it on the employer, because there are so many different types of work out there, You, you can't just generalize training and say this covers everything because it doesn't. So depending on the type of work you do, that an employer is responsible for setting up training programs for that type of work. And there are several sections in this particular standard. And the training program in this section covers all the sections in the standards. So that's how we decided to
1: cover it in this particular standard. Gordon, brings up an excellent point that if a company only works on rooftops, then they specialize their training based on up. Uh, If you work on water towers, then they specify their training based on those protocols. The same with monopoles, self-supporting towers, guide towers, all of them are unique. They're all above the ground, but they also have unique elements that they don't need to be trained to work on water towers if you never work on a water tower. Training has to be unique to to the employer. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about some of those unique challenges
0: to this type of work and the training that needs to go along with that.
2: I think as far as trainings, I mean, if you get a specific, like a base-mounted hoist, for example, how do you operate a base-mounted hoist? What qualifications do you need for a base-mounted hoist? So those things are all outlined in the standard. In general, again, not specific because it'll be the specifics maybe a little bit different for every employer. I mean, you have gym poles, you got a specific gym poles, you got RF, you got fall protection. I mean, there's so many different topics within the standard that cover a
0: different training. And to your point, Gordon, it is really contingent on the employer to know the specifics of the site they're working on and kind of tailor their training to that specific project each time.
2: Yeah, in general, I mean, if you were to call training, I mean, you got to be trained on the hazards that are exposed on a specific site or any site that you're working on. I mean, that's really the basis of, of training is to understand and recognize hazards
0: and how do you control those hazards. That's, at the end of the day, that's it. Exactly. Anything else uh, either of you would like to add about uh, A1048 or communication structure safety as as we wrap up?
2: There's one thing I think that maybe we we glossed over a little bit in Nate's conversations uh, with OSHA. Don mentioned that if we didn't write a standard, OSHA was going to write regulation. And so one of the big revisions in this particular standard is that OSHA and again agreement between OSHA and Nate is that they wanted this standard to change the grammar from should to shall, so that OSHA could reference this particular standard, and which is important, I think, because overall, this standard is the standard for telecommunications, and it's really important that anyone working in telecommunications understands the standards and follows. Gordon
1: read my mind. That's the only thing that we didn't touch on, and thank you, Gordon, for bringing that up. It was the permissive elements of it that OSHA struggled with. Again, how can they assess? Uh, company that's doing it right from one that's not doing it right if there were permissive elements in the standard. So it took a great deal of time, but like Gordon said, we've changed all of those and rewritten the standard so that there are not permissive elements in it. That doesn't mean somebody won't find them because no sooner than we published, than 2016 was published, that we started a list of all the things that needed to be in the next revision we ended up, within the first year and a half, we ended up with 15 items that became the basis of the 2023 and the items that we had to address. And I'm sure that no sooner than this one is, is in force, the people will come up with questions or concerns, and they can get interpretations from ANSI ASSP, and there's a process that you go through to get in patience of what the standard says. But that's also for 2028. That's right, as we noted things continue to
0: evolve as they must. As technology changes and everything else, the, the standards have to be updated
1: accordingly. That's right, advances in safety equipment and technology, it, we always are having to change it. Now remember ANSI and ASSB requires the standard to be affirmed every five years or to go through the process of, start, of, of making changes and then you have to, the committee has to be formed, the chairman has to be chosen. And then you'd go down that process, and it'll take a few years to do all those things. So it's, uh, it's an iterative process. It's no, no small group. I, I, this last standard, in fact, I, I wanted to share that with you, Scott, that there were one association, five general contractors, three end users, insurance companies, manufacturers, training companies, engineering and construction companies were involved the NC requires a broad cross-section of the industry. And it's not just four or five people getting together and deciding what they think is best. So that cross-section al- allows for a very comprehensive consensus standard, which is what A10.48 2023 is. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah, I think
0: that's something for people to remember. These are industry consensus standards. These are people from across different industries who deal with different aspects of this kind of work, bringing their knowledge and expertise to the process to make sure that they're putting out, you know, the best practices, the best guidance possible for those out in the field so that this work can be done safely. I want to thank you you both again for, for coming on it and for your work on this standard. As we've talked about, these are unique work sites with unique hazards that safety professionals and others need to address to make sure that You know whether it's construction, modification, maintenance, or demolition, that all this work is done safely. So uh, I want to thank you both again for all your work on uh, getting uh, the A-1048 standard uh, out to the safety community. So thank you again. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and be sure to leave a review to help others find the show. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org. We'll see you next time.